Welcome to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, and today we're actually out on location um, in the, at the Green Party offices down in Bermondsey, so if you can hear noises off, it's active campaigning that's going on the other side of the wall. Um, and we're talking about clothes, clothes and women and fashion, where to start, massive subject. Um, I'm going to start with one of my favourite quotes from King Lear, I do actually have another one but I can't broadcast that one. Um, which is why nature needs not what thou gorgest wearest, which scarcely keeps thee warm. And I think that says it all, really, as Shakespeare so often does. Um, we don't wear clothes for utilitarian purposes a lot of the time. We wear them because we want to, we wear them for show, they make us feel good, they make a statement. They're huge signifiers of mood, of status, of income and of self-expression. And of course, they're enormously important to women and men, um, but often a cause of great anguish. And I was really intrigued to see that one of our guests states in their impact report that 75% of women in the UK are unha- unhappy with how they look. Presumably not all the time, presumably only some of the time. Um, and I think clothing has a huge role to play in our lives. But of course, in terms of sustainability, it has a massive, massive impact on the planet. The EU have um, estimated that clothing and production of clothing accounts for between 2 and 10% of environmental impact in terms of European consumption. So there's a cost to what we buy, there's a cost not just in terms of financial costs, there's a cost in terms of the planet and its impact on the planet. And um, today, to help me discuss that, I'm uh, joined by three incredibly stylish women, indistinctly underdressed in this corner, um, Amelia Womack, who's Deputy Leader of the Green, Green Party and a sustainable fashion blogger and an advocate of um, vintage, what my mother might call second-hand clothing. Amelia, welcome. Sophie Slater, who's co-founder of Birdsong, which is a sustainable fashion business that empowers women as workers and of customers. Oh, yeah. And Bronwyn Lowenthal, who is design and director of Loewy. And Loewy's philosophy is to produce beautiful clothing people want to wear that as ethically as possible without jeopardising the design integrity. So Hi, welcome. There. Thank you very much, all three of you, for, for coming along. And, and Bronwyn, maybe I could start with you, because you're possibly at the higher end of the kind of cost scale of sustainable fashion, and you've chosen to take beautiful fabrics and turn them into beautiful clothes, but with that comes a price tag. So tell me about how you got to where you are and how you think that fits into the wider sustainability discussion. Well, I grew up um, on the wilderness island of Tasmania in Australia, so I've always had, with quite green parents, and we spent a lot of time um, walking in the wilderness so I've always had an appreciation for nature and so I feel like it's a little bit in my DNA to um, have a sustainable fashion business. I often get people saying to me when did you become sustainable? Why did you set up a sustainable fashion business? Well I didn't, I always have been and so uh, there wasn't really a choice for me like am I going to do it sustainably or not sustainably? Of course I'm going to do it sustainably because that's who I am and how I run my life um, in general. Um, but, you know, there are some cost implications, especially when you're a small fashion business. You know, just yesterday we were looking at um, organic hand-woven denim, 
and we got a price back at £26 per metre. This is made in India. So, you know, considering that you use two metres of denim for a pair of jeans, for example, that's already £50 before you've taken into account, uh, you know, labour costs, um, freight, um, my markup. And then, you know, if we're wholesaling at the shop margins as well, you end up with a, you know, really expensive um, piece of clothing. But there are ways around it. And our product certainly isn't um, extortionate. I think for, um, you know, people who like fashion, it's definitely, um, you know, it's more of a mid-priced um, item. And, um, you know, we, we sort of, you know, you can get this, most of our products priced between one and 200 pounds. For some people, that would seem like quite a lot. For, uh, for other people, that, uh, depending on your mindset, would seem like something that's definitely um, obtainable. But that's kind of the nub of the debate, isn't it? Because we have this argument about organic or sustainably mm-hmm. produced food produce, for example. And, you know, if, if you can go to, you know, a major fashion retailer or, you know, clothes retailer who's will remain nameless and buy a pair of jeans for £10, yeah. you know, and you're on a limited budget, you're going to do that probably rather than save up Absolutely. for months and months and months and buy a pair of jeans for £150. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how do we square that circle? Because that is difficult. And what we need to do is get people to think differently about clothing and fashion. Well, that's right. I mean, I, we encourage people to, to buy less, buy better buy things that you love and then look at brands that will repair um, or rework the garments that you've bought from them so that then you get another life. So there's like a a massive um, trend towards, even with people like um, uh, Whistles, Farfetch, for example, the high-end luxury um, e-tailers just launched like a buyback handbag scheme. Um, And I think we're going to see like a lot more... um, a huge trend towards um, reusing and recycling things. I mean, there's the Ellen MacArthur Foundation that works with big fashion retailers so that they can, you know, collect their old items. I think John Lewis has done things like, um, you know, giving £20 vouchers if people bring back their products. And then there's all these sorts of um, resale sites. I mean, for example, um, you know, the resale uh, market at the moment is worth £24 billion. But it's going to be worth 160 billion in 2030. So that's you know something to definitely look out for um, when you're looking at buying clothing and seeing you know what is the end use of it and how you know we can prolong the life of clothes. Oh, that, that's absolutely fascinating what you're saying about resale because obviously that's something that young people do all the time. You know they they, they, they wear it once and you know if they don't sell it on Depop. Sell it on Depop. On you know and let's hope they're doing that rather than just you know sticking it in the recycling or, or sending it to charity shop. But obviously there's a role for that and that's really important. Amelia, I know you've got you've got views about this because obviously this is something you spend quite a lot of time thinking about and you must spend quite mm-hmm. a while sourcing because you sell you, you, you wear a lot of vintage and. And, and second-hand things. So, so that that change in attitude to how we feel about clothes and about the fact that you know there is this there's, there's no stigma to, to, to having something that somebody else has worn and owned, is there? I think that attitude has changed, and I think that there's this feeling that there's no such thing as cheap fashion because something or someone is somewhere is paying for it. And we know more about our fashion when it comes to labour rights, when it comes to the destruction, um, the destruction of the environment. I mean, the carbon emissions um, of the fashion industry alone is more than international airport travel, um, airline travel, and more than maritime, uh, um, the maritime industry as well. 
So it's having a huge impact environmentally. And if you look at all the individual fabrics that we use, things like cotton, incredibly water intensive. And um, you need, just need to look at the RLC that's been reduced by 85% as a result of the cotton industry there to see the real life effect that that has on the communities, on the habitats and wildlife. And I think that quite, it's quite easy to be purchasing fashion and forget about those additional costs um, that have become more exposed over the years. And I think there is an interesting uh, change. And I think it is interesting when you have people like Vivian Westwood, for example, who have a label saying on all of their clothes saying, do you really need to buy this? Challenging consumption and challenging the fact that actually uh, continually buying fashion uh, isn't the best thing for the environment. However... Then Vivian Westwood puts on uh, a London fashion show, the Paris fashion shows, twice a year, telling people that actually what they currently own isn't good enough anymore. And I think there's so much... When I talk to people about sustainable fashion, what most people want is the most ethical and environmental option to be the cheapest and easiest. And I think that that's about making sure that we can repair it, that we can reuse it, thinking about what the next stage of those fabrics are. The fact that the majority of our clothes are made from virgin materials adds to that impact, whether that's um, adding to water scarcity or carbon emissions or environmental destruction. It's every, every virgin piece of clothing, which, which the majority, vast majority of it is, is adding to that. So I think there's a whole new way, things like um, Ellen, McCarthy, Ellen McCarthy's circular economy and thinking about actually how we move from a, an idea that waste is something that we put into the bin. I mean, we're at the point at the moment where Ellen McCarthy is saying that um, we're disposing of so much uh, clothes waste that we're uh, disposing of sending a dump truck to landfill or incineration once every second. And these are huge statistics that need to be addressed. Huge and terrifying. And, and you're right, you know, you, you talked about the, the, the carbon emissions. I think the estimate is 1.2 billion tonnes annually, which is just horrific. But, but that goes back to my quote, doesn't it? I mean, we don't buy fashion just because we need something to keep us warm or something to keep us dry. I mean, what motivates us for buying fashion is that we want to look fashionable. We want to look, you know, very often male, men and women, we want to look good, we want to look, you know, fabulous. We want to be attractive, we want to feel good about ourselves. So it's very difficult to balance that, particularly, you know, if you're a younger person. I mean, you know, I, I don't mind so much because I'm, you know, a bit long in the tooth and it doesn't matter. But my teenage, you know, soon to be not teenage daughters, they really want to look on trend. And you're right, you know, we have fashion shows coming out two or three times a year, ridiculous um, garments that we know and uh, are, are built for people who are, you know, unnaturally skinny so there's all those pressures on young women to look on trend and if they can pick something up really cheaply on the internet how do we counter that because that's really really the problem isn't it and I know Sophie you've worked in this area quite a lot haven't you yeah I think it's a really interesting point and to go back to um, what you're saying kind of about price point and our price point is quite similar with birdsong and we have kind of been actually criticised for for the price point that we have um, though we are direct to customer so that's our way of kind of reducing the cost as much as possible and I think a really interesting point is you know when you've got um, brands who are hiring people from Cambridge Analytica to do their their digital marketing when you've got brands spending billions on producing fashion shows and pumping into digital marketing and producing 10 billion garments a year which we'll never ever humanly be able to buy or wear 
you kind of got to think. Ten was, billion is that in terms of like you know the samples that get get onto the. That's cables? how many um, garments will be produced this year um, alone, and it's set to rise. Um, and when you think about it, I was at a really fantastic. Um, global fashion summit for LCF earlier in the year and they were saying that we really need to shift this blame on individuals and conspicuous consumption onto conspicuous production of brands and actually it's down to policymakers and brands to produce responsibly and I think when you're a smaller sustainable brand we can really easily pivot and make decisions like we're going to start using recycled cotton instead of organic or we're going to start using tensile, which is exactly what our kind of process has been. We've got more sustainable as we've gone forwards. But I think a big part of, of the kind of alienation of, of the labour and the, the alienation from our clothes has got to do with the fact that when you get a package, it's, it's not beamed down by an alien with impeccable taste on your doorstep. It's, it's made and everything is handmade. And I think the fact that wages have stagnated in the UK for such a long time, they've not really gone up for 10 years, um, and poor people are being ripped off with fast fashion because it doesn't last and it'll fall mm. apart after three washes and then you've got to replace it. So we're looking into credit options so that people can buy sustainably and pay it off in, in instalments, um, which I think is something that our customers have really asked for us for. And when I think back to... My mum in the 60s who grew up in poverty in Sheffield and used to get one outfit a year on Whitsunday and she'd go show it off to the neighbours and they'd pay it off in instalments and then she'd hand it down to her four or five sisters. So not saying that we have to go necessarily back to that, but then she had a beautifully made outfit that fit that was made in the UK for hopefully decent-ish wages. And I think with our clothes, what our main mission has been kind of going forward because we started out as a social enterprise because we had background work in women's organisations rather than a purely fashion background was to champion dignified well-paid work for local women um, and we pay £10.55 an hour to all the women who make our clothes locally in Tower Hamlets and what's the average for women who are working in, in the fashion industry? So there was a fashion textiles report that's part of the select committee um, fashion textiles report that came out last year that showed um, that many workers in Leicester, there's I think upwards of 10,000 garment workers in Leicester and they're being paid £3.50 an hour on average um, I guess through policies like the hostile environment people are easier to blackmail around like um, migration policy so that they could be kind of like told they're going to be dumped in if they if they speak up obviously unions are the weakest they've ever been uh, we've got some of the weakest unions in Europe um, people getting their pay up for being late so there's all kinds of ways you can get around it and especially this subcontracting um, which we tend to think happens just abroad in you know like Bangladesh and India and Cambodia, where we get most of our clothes produced. But lots of brands produce in the UK, and when you look at their prices and you look at how much you'd want to be paid and remunerated for your labour, it just doesn't add up. So, yeah, I think making that connection... So that's part of that wider sustainability debate, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Because if we think about sustainability not just in terms of the planetary impact, but actually in terms of people's lives and creating and building and supporting sustainable communities. Exactly. Paying somebody what is equivalent of a sweatshop wage to produce a garment, you know, and it's not acceptable, but but how do we call out organisations who are doing that? What's the kind of political dimension to this, Amelia? How do we know who they are and how do we 
hold, hold them to account. So I think there are many different issues at stake, and I mean to begin with the fact that we do have such an international. Uh, inter- we work so internationally. Things like the fact that even in the UK we have sweatshops essentially uh, taking advantage of migrant workers, and um, but internationally as well, what you're seeing is the vast majority of people who are not on a living wage. So a living wage is basically you're able to put a roof over your head and food on your, your table. I mean, this is the basics that you're working for. Um, that we're seeing people who are in uh, working conditions which the, uh, are just not up to scratch. You just need to look at Ranza Plaza, where there was 1,134 women were killed as a result of that building collapsing. And then it turned out that actually the environment they were working in was unhealthy. Um, that there's an, an issue with, with children who they begin by being in the fashion industry. They leave sc- young girls, typically young girls, leaving school quite early to start making money to you know, try and boost their salaries, ensure that they can keep that roof over their heads and then they're locked into that system for life mm-hmm. because they've not got an education. And so what we need is clear policy that challenges international, uh, international organisations that they can't do things like move their production around to get the cheapest labour costs, that they can't, they must be paying living wages, they must be addressing many of these environmental points. But in an increasingly globalised world, these are some of the challenges that we need to be working internationally on and um, I think that you know the power of, of working in the European Union and the power of, of working on a global basis needs to be uh, utilized and I think there's also there needs to be a lot more support for those people that are working locally that are using local people and local brands and that shouldn't be this should be uh, local should really be one of the best standards rather than driving down uh, costs by working internationally and effectively kind of almost having labor havens by being able to move your business around to find that small cut off your bottom line that means that you can make additional profits off the back of somebody's uh, slave labour. And it is modern slavery. And I think when we look at the state of the modern high street in the UK as well and kind of the the state that it's in with all these jobs losses and you've got places like Debenham shutting after decades, I think there does need... There's such a huge discrepancy between the high street retail giants and then the work that we're doing. And there needs to be more government support and investment in in green, clean technologies. We need to invest in fabric and textile recycling um, nationally. We need to, you know, be investing in wind farms. We need to be investing in local businesses who who want to pay a local living wage. Um, And there needs to be affordable ground rents for businesses like mine to be able to thrive. When you've not got rent control, that also applies to all the women's Mm organisations that we source from. It applies to us. It applies to anyone wanting to set up a local business. So I think there's so much to be done in terms of policy and the fact that you know they're talking about taking away VAT for repairs is fantastic. Yeah, but I absolutely. think there needs to be real incentive for British businesses who want to do things fairly and sustainably to, to thrive. And your model is very much about empowering local women, isn't it? Mm. So it, it isn't just a, a fashion business that's making you know good quality, but, but but possibly slightly more expensive products. It's actually about giving local women jobs and keeping those local skills. Exactly. We were founded basically on the basis that um, austerity has ripped apart women's organisations across the country and 92% in London had faced a funding crisis by 2013, just after we founded. And so many of these women have fantastic skills, whether being through from a different generation or migrant women, whereas the rest of the fashion industry was lamenting this lack of homegrown talent and it was right beneath our kind of eyes. And this homegrown talent is still being utilised in Leicester in sweatshops, but not 
um, they're not bringing the dignified conditions of work that they deserve. So I think our model could be replicated across a lot of different industries. And you can see social enterprises like the Soap Co and Goldfinger Factory kind of doing that. Um, and we're all thinking about sustainability as well, because when you when you start off with ethics, of course, sustainability is going to be a part of your mission too. But I do think that, um, you know, it's hard to make any kind of business work. And the way that businesses have grown in the past 25 years or, you know, longer, um, there's no, not been any incentive to, to make ethics a priority or sustainability a priority. So I think government really needs to look to smaller social enterprises um, and there is big society capital, which we've we've had a, a little slice of, but it's um, it was uh, quite a lot of, of talk, I think, and not so much. But a lot of your model is about, you know, because you started as a social enterprise, that's about getting in external funding. How do we make sustainable fashion affordable for people who are on lower incomes and still manage to make a profit as a business? I mean, I, I think. Um, I think there's certainly um, there are brands out there that are doing things. Um, I mean, there you know there are some high street brands that are doing stuff, and it's not all bad. You know, there is obviously some greenwashing. Like for example, Weekday, they do a lot. Um, you know, the sort of a vast majority of their product is actually very green and organic. Um, and I think as um, but a lot of those fast fashion, um, what I mean, what I learned in school, fast fashion, um, um, in retailers are actually greenwashing a lot, aren't they? So you they, see the they stuff are in greenwashing a lot, and, and it, it doesn't mean that we're sort of um, normalising, you know, green stuff. You know, we shouldn't be thinking that just because H and M's got a, you know, a green section, that then the rest of their product is is green. However, I think it's really important that we acknowledge the fact that the high street is trying. Um, well, they know that they have to do it, otherwise they're going to look bad and they're going to lose customers. And I think that customers can um, speak with their money and that the more um, green product that they buy, the more that these high street brands are going to keep making more sustainable products. But, you know, from um, Sophie, my point of view, you know, having two brands that have already, um, you know, very sustainable and have, that sustainability at our core. I think it does kind of minimise um, the, the work that we have been doing because it's like, well, everyone's doing it now. I mean, if you walk down the high street today, half the windows have got linen in it with, you know, big vinyl saying, you know, we're, 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 we're using linen, you know, it uses less water than cotton, all that kind of stuff. So everyone's jumping on the bandwagon, but I think in broader scheme of things, I think that's actually a really good thing. Um, I mean, to people who don't have much money, what I would say to you is have a look at your consumption habits. How many, how much are you actually buying? I mean, it's quite easy as Amelia knows, you know, you go down to your local charity shop and you can buy a t-shirt for a pound. I mean, it doesn't have to cost money. It doesn't have to cost a lot of money to dress sustainably. I think on a lot of these points as well, though, when I've worked with, with businesses, what they want is a level playing field. Um, and they actually want that policy to be there so that they're not, they're all in, all of these big brands are all in competition with each other. And part of that competition is uh, making sure you've got the highest profit margins and it's forcing these environment, this environmental destruction, this um, breach of labour rights. And I think that if we have clear policy ensuring that we're talking about leveling the play, playing field to a much higher standard, mm. then that changes the dynamic. 
And I appreciate that that then takes away from a lot of the work that, that you're already doing at your core rather than just doing it because you've been told to by policies. And I think that this is, um, but I, I think this is why we really do need to be striving for bringing things in a more local basis and ensuring that we're talking about communities because those big brands, who many of them have been avoiding tax, have not been paying back into their communities. Actually, these big brands are harmful to our high streets, which means that there's then not enough tax for our councils to go and pay the women's services, uh, the kind of vital uh, community, engage, provide the vital community work that they do. And it ties into many different issues. And just on, um, I was going to say just on supply chains in, in general, it was, um, I've worked on a few different supply chains for companies. And what's interesting is obviously the smaller your supply chain, uh, the more visibility you have over where your waste goes, what happens. And you wouldn't believe the amount of organisations that because they outsource, um, that, that they basically outsource where they buy things from, then you just have no understanding where it's come from. And many of these people who are greenwashing, many of these big brands that are greenwashing, it's because the buck stops with the people that they're buying from rather than understanding their entire supply chain. Yeah. And as a and, consumer, um, it's almost impossible to, to drill down into that procurement process, is it? I mean, you, yeah. you have no way of knowing where the garment that you're... Very often where the garment that you're buying, which you think from is an ethical retailer or reasonable it, retailer... It's coming from. You've no yeah. way of knowing where it's coming from. I mean, you've no way of knowing where they're sourcing the raw materials. And it's really, really difficult for for consumers who are, you know, trying to, 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 to manage on a budget, but also trying to understand this incredibly complex... Um, supply chain. Supply chain web sure. of information. I think... Do, Which do I think is where smaller brands can actually um, monitor things yeah. in a much mm-hmm. easier way. You yeah. know, I think um, customers want transparency, they want honesty, they want to know the story behind the product because it gives them a much better relationship with the product and I think they're going to appreciate wearing it more, which then goes back to the the whole kind of circular economy, sustainability issues where um, they want to keep that garment for longer when they know the story. But we should be calling out the fashion industry, shouldn't we? Because of so much of this is driven by you know, the, the, the fashion press, by the big fashion houses, by the, you know, that the, the desire to see what's on the catwalk in your shop and then in your wardrobe. And so we've, we've really got to kind of hold those people to account, haven't we? And, you know, some of the, the behaviour of those organisations is absolutely shocking and unacceptable. Mm-hmm. But as consumers, what can we do? I mean, it's very well to say, you know, vote with your pound, but they control so much of the supply yeah, for us. But- I mean, things have changed so much in recent years. We're actually consuming 400 times the amount of clothes that we were in 1998. And even things like people... And it's not because we're cold, because the planet is warmer. (laughs) And, uh, I mean, even Coco Chanel said uh, there's more to elegance than putting on a new dress. And I think there's been a real change in attitude that's been driving consumerism, uh, not just in the fashion industry, but as a whole. And I was so interested in what you were saying about repairs, because I think there's, um, and redesign, and I think, you know, recycling, repair, redesign, reusing, there are so many other ways that we can be making sure that we tackle this. But it's not going to be those big brands that's able to do it, because it's not going to work with their bottom lines. It's going to be nimble and innovative organisations like your own that are able to take on those challenges. Yeah, definitely. And I think like repairs is definitely the way to go. I think like that's something we are going to introduce as of next week when we get our new website we're working on. Um, and yeah, I think it's really tricky. I think actually like lower income people have got no choice but to be sustainable. Like it's really hard when there's a massive stigma against shopping secondhand when you're kind of on a low income and 
Um, I think actually it's maybe middle earners who are spending more and it's a privilege to, to have the educational literacy to understand sustainability and the time and the headspace mm-hmm. to think about it. Mm-hmm. When you're going out to buy your kids' school trousers like every couple of months, you're not going to be thinking about it if you're on a really low income. So I think it is up to brands, again, to be responsible rather than consumer. But if you have got the privilege of the time and the money to think about it, then do get involved in fashion revolution have got some fantastic resources um to to get educated about transparency and sustainability and the limitations of transparency as well because just because a brand's transparent doesn't necessarily mean they're ethical so but it's i mean it's about tackling that kind of desire isn't it amongst you know young women particularly yeah they they become economically active you know that they've got weekend jobs or they're in their first job they they you know naturally you will want to buy something that feels fashionable and on trend and and if you're going into the same place of work every day you don't necessarily want to wear the same outfit you know heaven forbid you might outfit repeat as my daughter say to me you know how are you going to get how are we going to get around that how are we going to get around that consumption issue fashion has changed i think it used to be that um you know you could look at the 50s 60s 70s 80s and you'd be able to look at an outfit and go oh that's uh 1984 or that's 1967 but it's not like that anymore since the 90s particularly it's there is a little bit of an anything goes culture i mean even among young people you know some of them are wearing tracksuits with gold hoop earrings some of them are wearing um you know tight dresses others are wearing like oversized baggy whatever you know at a fashion isn't what it used to be as far as trends go. It's not like, well, you know, this season's colour is lime green. If you're not wearing lime green, then you're not in. So is there an argument for having no more fashion shows? Is there an argument for having no more... Well, businesses you know, have got businesses. And as a business owner, you still have... You know, you're in business to make money. You, you're you not in business to... Um, I mean, you're in business to serve your customer, but, you know, there's no point having a business if you're not making money because then, in effect, you're not sustainable anyway because, you know, you have employees that you have to... So that, in turn, drives consumption, doesn't it? So well, that, you, you know, that around in, in a circle again, Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, I do think that people really are thinking, you know, as with Vivian Westwood, do I actually need this? Do I need it? Um people are spending more money on food and drink and holidays i really feel like they are thinking about their consumption of fashion and that they're certainly not trend driven but you know there is this as you say the thing sex sells we want to feel sexy especially when you're young you know you're out dating you're out um you know friday night saturday night you probably don't want to wear the same thing every week but there's certainly this culture of resale I know so many young people who, you know, they wear something once and it's straight on Depop, mm. and then that's it. Or maybe there's a kind of swapping thing, isn't there? It's this idea or that you buy a swap what you've got rather than resell it, and so we could have that kind yeah. of swap system. The that, new you know. wardrobes are a really great app for that, so you can find people in your local area and swap. And it's also it kind of functions as social media, but you can find someone who's got similar taste. What's it called? The new wardrobes. It's N U wardrobe, um, and it's really fantastic. I definitely recommend checking it out. And also. I also feel like this is why I do love shopping in charity shops and vintage shops and the way that vintage stores are actually um, redesigning clothes as well to meet some of the trends uh, I find quite interesting in itself. But it's just an opportunity to go and find something that you might not normally wear. Uh, it's maybe you're not... I really love uh, trades, three, two, one sales. So they'll have uh, things on kind of £6 and then it goes down to 3 
two and then the final day it's like a pound so I um, the amount of times that I've left with six new items of clothing and I've spent six pounds I maybe I'll maybe one of them isn't quite right and I end up taking it back to the charity shop but it's just um, at least my fashion has been sourced it's, it's been re, it's being reloved it's being sourced from somewhere um, that means that we're it's not all from new and it's not continuing to have these these impacts and I think that you know there is something quite satisfying about getting a bargain as well as supporting charities and organizations and that frees up the people's wallets to be thinking about some of those more expensive purchases that do last and I think that that's the point is this this aspect of fast fashion not lasting for for uh, I mean I've got clothes that are my grandmother's clothes because they were built to last for generations um, my mum often puts things from Primark in my like, Christmas uh, packages and she put, bought just like a base layer uh, uh, shirt to put under dresses and that lasted I mean I'd like to say that it lasted three months but I feel like that was pushing it before um, it started to fray that it started to fall apart and lose its shape and there's not um, the, the idea that the cheapest should be as you said the, the, the kind of least value to it yeah. it's really yeah. broken in our economy yeah completely if I just can say something, there's some. Um, I mean, there is a trend also towards the rental economy, sharing economy. Mm-hmm. So uh, those people who can't afford to, but you know, but would aspire to wear one of the high-end luxury brands, but can't afford to do it. Instead, you can hire a dress from um, Gucci, Dolce and Gabbana if that's your thing for maybe eighty quid. Wear it to your function that you've got on the weekend and, you know, send it back within five days' time and then someone else gets to wear it instead of, you know, having to spend 500, 800, 1,000 pounds. So those kinds of websites are doing really well um, and there's certainly more um, that are coming through as well. So what we need to do, I guess, is we need to be asking the questions, don't we? And we need to be encouraging um, those people who are shopping fast to think about you know, changing habits and perhaps shop less and shop slower. Um, but I do still think there's a lot that you've been saying, Amelia, it's actually about we have to hold you know, organisations to account and for that we need kind of a shift in government policy mm-hmm. and a shift in, in, in scrutiny that we put on to the, to the manufacturers. Because until we can look at a, 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 an item of clothing and say, I know this has been sustainably sourced because I can see the evidence right down to the, to the place it was grown, we're never actually going to be able to get out of this cycle. I think it's interesting that that's our expectations from our food, for example. We can see where it's been sourced. Um, uh, companies, um, uh, although it turned out to be fake, you know, the, there were some uh, superstores saying that they knew which farmer it came from. And it's interesting that that has changed when it comes to food, but it hasn't changed when it comes to fashion, when we do know so much more about it now. And I think we are seeing a trend that is moving back to the local and we have seen, and I mean, our high streets have been destroyed as a result of um, of big companies coming in and taking them over, and then moving moving out and leaving us with, ironically, charity shops, but and, and betting shops. And I think we're now seeing a change to bringing it back to the local, and that that trend is going through all kinds of sectors. We were talking about beer earlier, and uh, even you know that trend for local IPAs for what the local is. And I really hope that we break that model of big multinational companies who who don't have people, community, the environment at the heart of it, um, just uh, their their bottom lines and their finances. Because all those th- although those things are important um, when you're running a business, as you said, uh, Bronwyn, that 
actually the destruction that it's causing isn't good enough for the 21st century. And if we think differently about how those businesses work, then what can we create? And I think that sustainability and making sure that we're, we're not destroying people's lives and the planet and um, our climate are so vitally important at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. We couldn't end a fashion discussion without a top tip. Do you have a top tip that you want to share with our listeners, Sophie? I would really love to. I was just, it keeps coming to mind the John Berger quote that women are sold back um, through fashion the piece of ourselves we're told we lack. So I would say rather than kind of filling a void when you're buying and you're purchasing decisions, what what are you contributing towards instead? Is that someone else's likelihood? Is it a better vision of the future? So I just think about that quote when you're making your purchases. And by definition, that will make you feel better about yourself. Exactly. Roman? I feel that uh, each one of us needs to be an environmental educator, that each one of us has the responsibility and the opportunity to remind people, not just with fashion, but, you know, how they're doing their food shopping, how they're doing everything, you know, make sure that you remind people why, you know, why are you buying that bottle of plastic, plastic bottle of water? Where is your keep bottle? Mm. Just all this kind of stuff. And um, especially, you know, educating kids, but I know that I'm having to educate my parents about things that I never thought I might have to. And I think it's really important that we all do our little bit. Absolutely. And that's about keeping that conversation out and live and happening, isn't it? Yeah. I think there's a lot that I've been reflecting on at the moment about what's our legacy as um, a, as a generation, as a period in time. And our legacy is plastic waste. Our le- legacy is destruction of rainforests, a broken climate. Um, even uh, thing, uh, even uh, if we look back and, and see what we've been doing on workers' rights, just a stripping back of, of humanity of so many people. And it's hard to hold all of those issues at the same point when um, trying to make a purchase because it's it's something that when you just walk into a shop to want to wear something you look good in, you're not going to be thinking about all those issues. So I'd say our most important that one thing that everyone can do is use politics to change things. Make sure you are petitioning and lobbying and using those different forms of politics to have your voice heard. Because if we can change the political system to represent these issues and ensure that the the most environmental and sustainable choice is the easiest, then it will be far far easier for everybody and um, who who does want to be purchasing new clothes and fashion. We can't have a politician on the pod without allowing them their their, their last word and their call to action. Thank you all very much. Thank you, huge thank you to to my guests, to Amelia and Bronwyn and Sophie, and um, we will all shop more sustainably when we buy clothes from now on. Thank you to my guests and thank you for listening. We would love to hear from you about what you think about Planet Pod. You can tweet at planet underscore pod or get in touch via the website theplanetpod.com where you can subscribe and download previous episodes. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give us a five-star review. It helps us make better programmes. Be sustainable and stay green. Planet Pod is an Akil Sounds production hosted by me, Amanda Carpenter, edited and produced by Jim Haywood, with additional research by Beth Palmer. 